Well, good morning to you. Once again, thank you for the few of you who are here. It's a joy to be with you uh, this morning. It, it really is. It's a privilege to get to uh, come this morning and uh, worship the Lord with you and to have the honor of getting to share God's Word with you. I, I really uh, do appreciate it. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Uh, if you're wondering who this man is standing before you and you haven't had a chance to uh, read the bulletin or whatever, my name is Josh Yates, as was mentioned, and I come to you by way of Memphis, Tennessee, where I work at Second Presbyterian Church. Not with me this morning is my wife, Jennifer. Uh, we've been married almost 10 years. Uh, a week from today, actually, we will be on a, uh, a trip celebrating our, our 10-year anniversary. It'll be our first trip since our honeymoon, and uh, we've had four kids in that time. So those of you with kids know that we're, we're tired and ready for a little bit of a, a break. She's not here. She's at home with our children, but she sends her, her greetings nonetheless. I, I do think that we share even a closer connection uh, than that. However, my wife and I were both led to Christ and discipled through college by the ministry of Campus Outreach, who I know many of you are familiar with, at least, and uh, know uh, very well. This church, I know, does as well. We were incredibly blessed by our almost eight years of being involved with that ministry as students and later as staff, and I know that uh, you guys are richly blessed by having them here, and they're richly blessed by being a part of uh, this body as well. So good morning and, uh, and welcome again. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the last uh, verses of James chapter 1. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. When I was a young teenager, maybe even 12 years old, 12, 13, somewhere in that range, I remember going to a Billy Graham crusade that was being held in a massive auditorium in downtown San Antonio, uh, Texas, which is where I'm from. I wasn't a particularly religious child. My parents didn't spend time in church as they were being raised, and we spent little to no Sundays in churches as I was coming through. But some parents of the uh, local neighborhood boys, they gathered us, they gathered the Rat Pack, you know, and they, they drug us downtown for the afternoon. I, I don't remember much of what I heard. I don't remember many of the songs we sang, but I do remember very distinctly that later in the evening, uh, they invited everyone who wanted to give their life to Christ to come forward, and thousands flooded the floor. Uh, after speaking to a man for a few moments, I, I prayed and asked Jesus into my life. I committed my life to him, and I, I went back to my seat. Later that night, I went home, and like many of my friends that day, I forgot all about Jesus and forgot all about the commitment that I had made to him, and I continued to live my life the same way I always had, except now I called myself a Christian. It wasn't until almost a decade later that I met a man in the locker room at Arkansas State University where I played baseball. He was our chaplain. He began sharing the gospel with me and began helping me to understand the realities and the implications of the gospel on my life that, that I began to realize for the first time that my, my profession of faith was false, that I I didn't know Jesus, that Jesus didn't know me, and that the commitment I had made to him all those years before, it wasn't, it wasn't genuine. I was what our passage this morning is going to call deceived. James is a pastor at heart, and he's writing to his congregations, and his biggest concern is that they would build their lives upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. 
But as he's interacted with them and he's begun to see some things, he's begun to hear some things that have caused him to grow concerned about the integrity and the genuineness of their faith. James is concerned that there are some among the churches that he's writing to that are in fact building their lives upon the sand and not upon the teaching and the life of Jesus. This building their lives on the sand results in a great crash, Jesus teaches. So in our passage this morning, James is going to lay out for us the nature of genuine faith. And he's going to ask us the probing questions. What, what about you? What are you building your life upon? Is it the teaching and the life, the solid rock of Jesus Christ, or is it the sand? So if you have your Bibles open, let's read together James chapter 1, verses 16 to 27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As we mentioned, James is going to lay out for us the nature of genuine faith, and there's three characteristics of this genuine faith that I want us to see as we consider this passage this morning for a few moments. The first thing we have to see in verses 16 to 21 is that genuine faith bears the fruit of ongoing and continual transformation. Secondly, in verses 22 to 25, James is going to teach us that genuine faith is characterized by a lifestyle of obedience to God's Word. And lastly, in verses 26 and 27, we have to see that genuine faith spins itself in the pursuit of holiness and loving others. Okay? Three points. That's how every sermon works itself out. It's amazing how the Scriptures do that. But three points, okay? First thing, genuine faith bears the fruit of ongoing and continual transformation. I came across a quote this week that I thought was brilliant in light of what we're talking about this morning. One gentleman wrote, The one thing that the gospel never does is nothing. Did you hear that? Let me me say it again. The one thing the gospel never does is nothing. 
This is exactly what James is saying. That the one who has come into genuine contact with the gospel, who has had the gospel planted in their heart by faith, that it is impossible for this same gospel not to have any effect on this person's life. Paul calls the gospel the power of God for salvation, from which we get our English word dynamite. What James is saying is that when the dynamite of the gospel explodes in your heart, it changes us, and it continues to change us and transform us all the days of our lives. There's a wonderful connection here between verse 18 and 21 that that we have to see if you'll look at verse 18 again with me. What James is doing is he's telling us that God in his goodness and in his grace has caused us to be brought forth. That's birthing language. That is to be born again, to be converted, to be saved. That God in his goodness and in his grace through the gospel has saved us. He's taken the reality that though we stand before him condemned, only deserving his righteous and just wrath because we've shaken our fist at him all the days of our lives, even though that that's where we stand, he has taken his son Jesus Christ and he's offered him as a substitute on the cross for us and that he's flooded our hearts with this reality and that as a result we've been changed, we've been transformed, we've been born again, we've been saved. He goes on to say that this reality has caused us to become the first fruits of his creatures, which means that God in his cosmic plan, the cosmic scope of redeeming and reconciling all things to himself, which is what he's in the business of doing, that he's using the church, big C, and he's using you and I as individual members of it as exhibit A of what it looks like when God shows up and the gospel takes root. So that when somebody wants to ask the question, what is this gospel business all about? They they need not look any further than the church. They need not look any further than your life and my life individually. That's who we are, James says. That's your identity, brothers and sisters. That's your destiny, James says. And then in verse 21, he he says, therefore, therefore, what? Therefore, because this is true of you, because all that you have and all that you are is wrapped up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, because your destiny is eternal and it's secure, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That is, repent as things crop up in our lives that are out of step with this gospel that cause us to embrace a different identity than the one that God has given to us, that cause us to live for a different destiny than the one that is ours based on our union with Jesus. We, we cast those things off, James says. And in its place, we meekly, we humbly receive again the implanted word of the gospel. We believe, we repent and we believe. We repent, and we believe. James is connecting the word that saved us with the very same word that continues to save us. What James is doing is calling us to a lifestyle of continual conversion. One of the chief ways we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're building our lives on the rock is that we look primarily to our past experiences 
of conversion and not to the present experiences of the gospel-bearing fruit that genuine faith produces. We're being reminded that the nature of genuine faith is that this process of gospel renewal where we're continually casting off those things which displease our Lord and cause us to uh, identify with something other than Him and come again in new and fresh ways to the gospel, that this practice of renewal becomes the norm in the pattern of the life of the Christian That the one who has been saved by the gospel will continue to be saved by the same gospel. Does that mean that we we don't struggle? Is that what you're saying, Josh? That if I struggle, I don't have faith? Certainly not. Just follow me around for a few days and you'll see that I'm, I'm a train wreck. But it does mean that we struggle repentantly. Fighting fighting with all of the energy within us to believe and to apply and to live out the gospel as our flesh wages war on our souls. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't struggle. But there's also no such thing as a Christian who doesn't repent and believe the gospel. So the first thing James wants us to be sure of is Uh, that those who have genuine faith, it it bears the fruit of ongoing and continual transformation as the Holy Spirit, which has been sealed into our hearts, brings us again and again and again and again into new and fresh experiences of the lavish grace of God in Jesus. That's just the reality of the gospel. The second thing that James is making clear for us is that genuine faith is characterized by a lifestyle of obedience to God's Word. Verses 22 to 25. Obedience is the hallmark of the true child of God. James knows that meekly receiving this implanted Word involves more than simply hearing it and agreeing with it, but it involves submitting to and obeying it. It's here that we get the full force of James's concern for the church and for us. His big concern is that there exists among his churches and among all churches who give lip service to Jesus and to his teaching, and yet it ends there. They're deceived, as James tells us in verse 22. There's an understanding in biblical teaching that to truly believe something means to obey it, to live according to it. That's that's the ethos of the Bible, that if if you believe something, you, you obey it. It plays itself out in your life. We get that in other areas of life. We, we think that way naturally. What would you think of me if if you heard me constantly talking about my love and my devotion for the St. Louis Cardinals, yet after the service you saw me putting on a Chicago Cubs jersey. Beyond some other things you might try to do to me that would involve a little bit more physical force, at least one of the things you would say to me is, Josh, your, your profession, what you say is out of line with your life. You keep talking about how much you love the Cardinals and yet you're 
you're wearing a Cubs jersey. Those, those things are different, very different, especially for those of you who like one of those two teams, right? That's all James is saying. One commentator said it best when talking about this. He said what James is suggesting is that the Christian must not think he is done with the Word of God after it has saved him. That Word becomes a permanent, inseparable part of the Christian, a commanding and guiding presence within him. James is simply calling us to accept and believe what Jesus himself taught us, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. James is warning us not to be deceived into thinking that a mere profession of faith alone is sufficient, but that genuine faith is characterized by both hearing and subsequently obeying and practicing the same word. And in in his defense, James contrasts two people to illustrate his point. One man, James says, is the person who simply hears the word and then he, he forgets it. That is, he intentionally, purposely discards it. He has no plan and no intention to follow up on it, to practice it, to consider what this word might have to do with his life. This is the person who sits in church every week. Maybe they even take some notes, really good notes. Maybe they even shout some amens when the pastor gets all fiery. Maybe they even raise their hands a little bit during worship, but then when it's over, they close their Bibles and they close their notebooks and they throw them back on the shelf where they were and they go home and they're, they have no intention to continue thinking upon what they've heard. They have no intention to meditate upon and ask the question, oh Lord, what does this have to do with my life this week? How does this impact the way I run my business? How does this change the way I talk with my children? How does this change the way I I view media? How, How does this affect the TV shows that I watch and the music that I listen to and the way I think about my money and the way I think about my vacations? And, oh Lord, what does this have to do with my life? No, he puts it away. And until next Sunday or the following, whenever he's here next, it's gone. He's looked at himself in the mirror of the Word. And he's walked away. And he's forgotten what he looks like, James says. The other person is the exact opposite. He hears the word as the first man does, but then he he obeys the word. He follows through. He perseveres, James says, in this. And he obeys. He takes this word and he considers and asks and prays and thinks and meditates and labors. Oh God, what does this have to do with my life? I want to build my life upon the solid rock of your life and your teaching. It's interesting that James puts all of us into one of these two categories. He says that if you're here today and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you're either a hearer who forgets or you're a hearer hearer who obeys. Being a hearer alone is the life of building your life on the sand that will come crashing down in the end. But the life of being a doer of the word, says James, is the blessed life of being built upon the rock. And when the storms come and when life beats against that house, Jesus says, it stands firm because it's been well built. It's been built on the right foundation. 
shouldn't surprise us if you looked at all of the scriptures, you would see the overwhelming data would be in favor of the reality that uh, the blessed life is the life that heeds and obeys and builds itself upon the Word of God. And that wherever the Word of God is circumvented or set aside, life does not follow, but in fact, death follows. Makes me think about Psalm chapter 1. You know, Psalm 1 is really the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. All the Psalms are built on its teaching in in a sense. And this is what it says. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to me. Listen to what the psalmist is beginning the worship manual for the church with, with, with teaching us. Think about this. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Joyful in the Lord. Rich in God is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man who counts as his chief delight the law, the word of his God. And on his law he meditates day and night. That is to say that morning and evening this blessed man begins and ends every single day day with the contemplation and the meditation upon the Word of God to say, Oh Lord, I want to live your life today. Blessed is this man, he says. He's like a tree that's planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. He never lacks the nourishment. He never lacks the sustenance. He never lacks the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give. In all that he does, he prospers. Blessed is this man. One of the things I'm trying to teach my children right now, which is easier said than done, is the simple idea that obedience brings joy. That's what the psalmist and That's what James is teaching us, that the truly blessed life is the life that is bound in obedience to the Word of God. And not to be deceived into thinking that an actionless life, a life lacking obedience, will profit you anything, either in this life or in the next. And before you all drag me out of here, I don't want you to confuse what I'm saying with some kind of legalism or some kind of works-based righteousness. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying and what the Scripture is teaching us is that when we experience the wonderful grace of God, when, when we come into contact with the living God by His grace through Jesus Christ, it changes us into joyfully obedient people. When we realize how dead we were and how alive He has made us and that we've done nothing in that except add the sin to the equation that required Jesus to be crucified, it makes us want to obey Him. It makes us want to follow Him. Jesus becomes beautiful to us and we no longer want to live for ourselves, but we want to live for the One who for our sakes died and was raised. As the Apostle Paul said, we become those who are compelled and controlled by the love of Christ. His pleasure becomes our delight. Obedience to Him becomes our passion. Genuine faith, the heart in which verse 18 
being brought forth really happens, that person, genuine faith results in a lifestyle of obedience to God's Word. A repentant lifestyle, but a lifestyle of obedience nonetheless. And lastly, in verses 26 and 27, genuine faith spends itself in the pursuit of holiness and love for others. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes us a people for others. It's one of the greatest implications of the gospel is that it turns you outward. Makes us a people committed to the glory of God and to the service of God in the service of others. Jesus himself taught us a valuable lesson in the Sermon on the Mount when when he said, you will recognize them by their fruit. He was talking about the false teachers, but it's true for us as well. And the fruit of faith, says James, is an uncompromising pursuit of holiness and a life committed to pursuing and fulfilling the greatest commandment, that of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. And a person's religion, that is to say a person's profession of faith, that's what James means. He's not using the word religion the way that we use it in our culture with this negative connotation. He means it in the highest way. A person's religion, a person's faith is useless, he says, is vain, is unprofitable if it doesn't contain these elements. It's not genuine. The fruit of that tree is not the fruit of faith. It's the fruit of the flesh. It's the fruit of something else. And it's unprofitable. To this point, James highlights an an interesting point. He, He draws attention to the way we speak of all things. Of all the things he, he could have said, he, he draws attention to the words that come out of your mouth. It's not the first time he's talked about our speech, even in our passage, and in almost every chapter, and in, later in chapter 3, he'll spend half of his chapter talking about the way we talk. Speech is a huge theme for James, but, but I really think that James is also aware of this reality, that out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And James knows that, and so he's saying that that if you claim to have faith, yet you also have an unbridled tongue that flows from your heart and is manifesting your heart. If, If your tongue is out of line with the gospel, if the way you talk to and about people is out of line with the gospel, then that's indicative of a much deeper concern, a heart that has not been warmed, a heart that has not been transformed by the gospel. It's scary to think that if somebody really wanted to know who I was or wanted to know who you are, they could just listen to the words that come out of your mouth and they could tell you everything. Now, does that mean that if we let words slip or we're occasionally rude or, or I'm upset at my children if I yell at my wife every now and again? Does, does it mean I'm not a Christian? Absolutely not. Again, it means we repentantly engage these things. We repentantly, by the Lord's grace, cast these things off and come again to new and fresh experiences of the gospel, which warms our heart and causes me to want to give life with my mouth and not to spread death and destruction. James then contrasts, closing his 
his discourse here saying that pure religion, genuine faith that pleases God is a faith that visits orphans and widows in their affliction. Is that what you thought James was going to say? Genuine faith, the kind of faith that pleases God the most is the kind that visits orphans and widows in their affliction. He didn't say goes out and shares its faith and does all this. No, it visits orphans and widows in their affliction. If you survey the scriptures, you'll see an overwhelming theme that God cares for those who can't care for themselves. And as people filled with his spirit, one of the primary ways that that plays itself out is we model our Father in heaven by being gracious and kind and generous and merciful to the least of these, to the destitute and the broken, the ones who don't deserve it. That's all James is saying is that genuine faith models its heavenly Father in reaching out and initiating to those who are lost and broken and helpless. This is true religion, says James. And finally, digging the dagger a little bit deeper, he says that true, pure religion that pleases God is to keep oneself unstained from the world. There is no salvation that is not accompanied by a pursuit of holiness. That's just reality. The gospel, the scriptures teach us that along with being declared right by God, justification, the resulting process of sanctification, taking on the characteristics and the nature of our God, follow it. They're two sides of the same coin and you, you can't divorce them. That's what James is saying, that the pursuit of holiness, of sanctification is as common to the life of the believer as, as anything is. They, they, they can't possibly live without it. That's the work of the gospel in their life. The idea of keeping oneself unstained from the world carries the idea of not thinking and acting in accordance with the value system of the world around us. A true profession of faith that impacts every area of our lives, the core of which are the way we think about ourselves and who we are in our relationship to the world that God has placed us in. And in, a, in another short chapter from now, James will tell these same church, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world declares war on God. The pursuit of holiness, this reminds us, is not some novel idea for the most committed of Christians. It reminds us that sin on all accounts is a huge deal. It's a matter of allegiance either to God or to this world. It's a matter of life and death, says James. For those of you who are feeling a little bit challenged, maybe you're a little type A like I am, maybe you're prone to a, a guilty conscience, maybe you have some tendencies towards legalism, and right now you're already, you're already doing your to-do list in your head. Please stop doing that. 
before you get to work confronting all of these things, we, we have to remember that the true power that results in these things actually changing in your life is to go back to what we said at the beginning, that God in his grace and in his mercy and in his kindness, he has brought you out of death to life and he has filled you with his spirit and it is by the power of his spirit alone that we are transformed more and more into his likeness. So, so quit making your to-do lists. Come back to Jesus. Connect with him more fully and I promise you that as you embody more of this life, this life will play itself out in your lives in the pursuit of holiness and in loving others as yourself. The gospel makes us a people for others. And the fruit of faith in this gospel is the pursuit of holiness and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so how do we respond this morning? How do we make sure as we close our time thinking how to apply this, how do we make sure that we're not those people that James mentioned who are hearers and forgetters of God's word? It would be a huge shame for us to consider this passage and to do exactly what James has just told us is not genuine faith. There's a great tension that that I feel this morning. I've heard other pastors talk about this tension as well, and it's making sure that the right person gets the right message. There's so many of you, you can't possibly tailor, tailor everything to meet every person's individual needs. That's one of the great tensions I feel is making sure that those of you out here get the, the right thing this morning. Some of you are, are Christians. Many of you are Christians. Verse 18 has happened in your life. You have been born again. You are as secure in your identity and your destiny as the saints in heaven. You are not more secure than the angels around God's throne or less secure. My, my intention is not that you would doubt your salvation this morning and spin yourself off the world considering uh, all of these things. My, my intent and the passage's intent is to call you to examine the nature and the fruit of your faith and to consider what areas might need a little pruning. So in what ways have you not taken the will of God expressed in the Scripture seriously enough? In what ways have you forgotten the word? In what ways is your faith not bearing fruit in love for others? Who are those around you whom the Lord would call you to love and to serve in grace and generosity this week and in the coming weeks? In what ways have you bought into the world's values? Are there areas where you're being more guided by secular media and the allurements of success and of significance and of security and prosperity in this life more so than you are by the Lord Jesus Christ and the identity and the riches of his eternal kingdom that he offers you and what areas are the trinkets of this world more valuable to you than the storehouses of treasure that our Lord himself is preparing for you what ways have you bought into the world's values. In all of these areas, as children of God, your gracious Father, our gracious Father, is calling us to repent and believe again. Would you, would you repent and believe again this morning? 
The promise is that the joy of the blessed life awaits you. More of Jesus is yours for the taking. There's some of you in here who you're, you're not a Christian and you, you know you're not a Christian. For whatever reason, you came this morning, maybe some friends drug you, maybe you heard there was a circus in town and you took a wrong turn and I look enough like a clown that you decided to stay. Maybe that's you. What this passage says to you, it, it reminds you that your only hope in life and death is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Your, your money, your intellect, your, your, you know, uh, whatever you can do business-wise, whatever you can do athletically, none of those things will profit you in the end. That your only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ and the grace that God offers in Him. And this morning, you're being invited to be converted for the first time to humbly receive this word and the Lord of this word, Jesus Christ himself as your Lord and as your Savior and to bind yourself to him all the days of your life. What a wonderful promise we have though that this Jesus and his gospel will save your souls. What a beautiful word for us. We could stop there and we could go home, but I really think it would be unloving of me not to make sure to make clear the thrust of what James has been confronting and saying this morning. His greatest concern was for those who profess a faith and yet their faith is not genuine. They are those who will come to Jesus on that day in with some of the most sobering and scary words that you could hear. You'll hear from Jesus, away from me. I never knew you, and on the day when it's too late, you will find out that you have been deceived. I, I don't pretend to know any of our hearts, but I also know that none of us, including myself, is, a, is above this kind of deception, especially in our American culture where following Christ has been so watered down to mean so little. So I have to ask you, are you deceived? Are you the one who honors Jesus with your lips, yet your heart is far from him? Is your faith more of a mental ascent than an overarching world and life view that undergirds and impacts everything about you? If so, come, come to the Savior. The wonderful and gracious God we have is saying that this gospel is for you. One of the great things we see from Scripture is that God is a good father and all good fathers at times do things to their children that in the moment hurt them and are not pleasurable, but in the end they promote life. And our loving and gracious father is yelling to us, his children, children who are about to jump into the street and get run over by a dump truck. He's, he's yelling, stop, wait, consider, before it's too late. That's what God is doing for us this morning. And the great reality for all of us, this passage teaches us the one truth that we all need, that the gospel is for you. Would you trust it this morning, either again and again or, or for the first time? And again, the promise is that this Jesus and his life will save your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. 
We're thankful for the ways in which you have been kind to us, the ways in which you have uh, led us to yourself, the grace you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Father, I would pray for every one of us that we would hear from your Spirit this morning, that we would consider your Word, and we would not be uh, hearers who forget, but that even now your Spirit would be pressing upon us all the ways in which you mean for us to respond for you and to you. Father, thank you that you're kind and that the gospel proclaims that sinners are welcome into your presence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.